Hello, I'm Dan Houghton, and I'm glad to uh, join Dr. Wes Youngberg this afternoon for a, uh, another update on the coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Youngberg, it's been little, well, almost 45 days since we did one of these on broadcast it on, on YouTube, did a live stream. Wow, so much has changed. We've had a world that's been turned upside down. And I think a lot of people are wondering, where do we go from here? And I think it'd be good. I think the last time we were together, we were on the rostrum of the, or the, the stage of the church at Fallbrook. We were doing a demonstration on how to do uh, hot and cold fomentations. That was, I think, if I remember right, March the 18th. And here we are at May 1. Today's May the 1st. We're obviously socialized, socially isolating because I'm in my home, you're in your home. And we're able to do this and be able to put it up on... Uh, on the uh, YouTube for live stream a little bit later. So what, what's happened? You know, just give an overview of where we're at and what's happened over these last 45 days. Well, you know, over the last uh, month and a half, uh, we have realized how critical it really is to address the things that we were first talking about, about optimizing our immune system. If there's anything that we've learned, Dan, uh, over this, this last uh, few months, is that people with a strong immune system do just fine. Uh, it's those individuals in high-risk groups that have weakened immune systems because of diabetes, because of underlying factors associated with hypertension, heart disease, uh, et cetera. And so, and so the individuals that we need to be able to focus on right now is is uh, helping individuals who already know they have these conditions and educating them about how to better improve their health because the, the, the current state of health within their known disease, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, whatever it might be, is directly proportional to their current risk for COVID-19 turning deadly. And so it's, it's almost like COVID-19 now uh, and the virus responsible for it, the SARS coronavirus 2, is, is an accelerator of whatever you already have got going on. So it, it, it enhances or increases the, the pathology associated with whatever is happening inside your body right now. And so... Uh, the, the corollary to that, the, the good news is that if we effectively address a given risk factor that we know we have, like high blood sugar or high blood pressure or high cholesterol or, or, or uh, whatever it might be. Being overweight, we, I understand, is big too. Yeah. If, if, we, if we are directly addressing that risk factor through natural methods, through lifestyle medicine strategies, we are directly lowering our risk associated with COVID-19 complications because they're really tied together. The, uh, I just spent almost two hours on a webinar with Dr. Roger Schwelt from, from uh, Redlands, California. He's a Loma Linda University uh, uh, clinical, assistant clinical professor, as I am, but he is board certified in four, four different areas, internal wow. medicine, sleep medicine, pulm uh, pulmonary medicine, and critical care. And uh, what I love about him is that he, as a pulmonologist working in the intensive care unit, he is now recognizing that this is primarily an issue of oxidative stress. 
where the immune system is, is compromised and the cardiovascular system is, is compromised. And so I love it when there's a specialist in medicine who is willing to think outside of their specialty. It's kind of hard for him to do that since he has so many specialties, yeah. but, but uh, uh, and, and recognize and, and as a medical detective, figure out what's really going on. And so today we're gonna to be talking about what are the many things that we can do to optimize the, the immune system. One of, Dan, one of the criticisms or one of the concerns or confusions about optimizing or, or enhancing the immune system is people going like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We thought that was the whole problem that the immune system was overreacting. And so we don't want to do anything that would enhance the immune system to make it even overreact more. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a common concern, even voiced by many physicians that are well-trained, but that, that, uh, that underscores a, maybe a lack of a more comprehensive understanding of how the immune system works. Well, you know, Wes, just as, as you're getting ready to go there, let me jump in for a second. I think for most lay people, you know, that are out there, the average people that are not medical professionals, they're looking and saying, man, there's so many confusing messages yeah. coming out. You know, there's this idea, there's no masks, and then there's masks, and then there's hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine, and then there's not hydroxychloroquine. Then there's something new. And then we find out, hey, it's maybe not so much to do with your lungs as it is to your cardiovascular system. Yeah. All of, it tells me that there's just a lot we don't know about this. And we're learning it. The postmortem on this whole process is going to say, wow, we sure made some dumb decisions, didn't we? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a process of learning what works and what doesn't work. And then, but also being true to the science of what we already know. Sure. So oftentimes, um, uh, we in the healthcare field aren't paying attention what the what what we have learned from past pandemics, past respiratory infection pandemics, and and if we do pay attention, that we have a leg up, we have a sure. an understanding of what to try, and then of course in, embrace the research project uh, process to see what else we can learn, so that we can keep fine tuning this in a way that we can powerfully improve our health. So the original uh, confusion was, you know, there, there, was, there was information on the use of uh, N-acetylcysteine, this, yeah. this um, amino acid really, that helps build glutathione in the body and that can act as a, a way to help detoxify the body, but also uh, dramatically decrease viral replication. And, and many other well-respected physicians, Dr. Neil Nedley, Dr. Roger Swelt, and others have, have actually talked about, this is research that has been published in, in uh, highly credible medical journals that individuals with, for instance, the seasonal flu or a risk of it when taking N-acetylcysteine as a, as a supplement uh, can, will dramatically lower their their tendency to experience severe symptoms. They, they still may get the infection, but, but they, they're 75% less likely to have negative symptoms well, from it. Of course, yeah, that's a big it. deal. Well, I, I think that lifestyle medicine, of course, that's your specialty, lifestyle medicine, but even more pulling together strategies that help us to survive these moments. And I, I love what you said in the opening that 
hey, we've discovered now that it's people that have these underlying conditions or these other complicating factors in their immune system that is really where the deaths have occurred. Now that's pretty amazing. If, you're, if your immune system is healthy, um, your, your chances are so much better. And of course, that's where, you know, one of the things in our Fallbrook Church community, Fallbrook Seventh-day Adventist Church community, which you and I are part of, and that will be watching this, um, we have not had a single case that I know of in our own church. Now, my son, he's a pastor up in, Oregon, uh, in uh, Colorado. He actually has had one family that has had um, the COVID in their family, and many other people have. We have not. And I think that also may be a testament that we've been talking about lifestyle medicine for a number of years. Uh, you've been sharing these principles and our people are, are paying attention to that. So, you know, now on May 1, we have opportunity to say, all right, we can start making adjustments to our thinking now. That, that's right. And so, so the, the part of this uh, comes with understanding of how to enhance the immune system properly. Okay. What, what we've learned about the <clears throat> research so far is that when, when somebody is exposed or infected with, uh, with SARS coronavirus 2, the virus that causes COVID-19, what happens is that that virus tricks the immune system and just laying low. Mm. They're kind of like, it's okay. We're not going to do anything, really. Just let us, let us kind of let us kind of cohabitate with you. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so the immune system kind of lets it happen and does not activate against the virus. And so during these, uh, these five to 12 days, the virus is just making it, make, reproducing and reproducing and reproducing, unchecked by the immune system. And, and finally, when the virus is, is so powerful, it overwhelms the immune system and then it finally wakes up and it's too late. The, the condition uh, progresses to the point where now the symptoms are so severe they may need to be hospitalized, et cetera. Wow. Well, what we know is that 80% of people who have symptoms, you know, who, who know they have the problem because they have symptoms, sure. go on to not have any problems, never re require any medical care of sorts. Uh, and, and only about 20% need hospitalization. But if you include, with, with the antibody testing now being more available, we have learned that over 4% of the population has been exposed to COVID-19, has actually been infected and produced antibodies. And that's, that's a rough early measure of, of, of some studies that have been done here in California. And, and so we know that this is, the infection is far more widespread than we initially thought. Sure. And that means that literally, 90, 95, or a higher percentage than that of people who get infected never need any, any medical care at all, okay? They just, they eventually, their immune system is able to fight the fight and ultimately win the fight. So even within that population, Dan, our job is to educate them on how to optimize their immune system further so that this virus doesn't even get a little bit of a hold on us. It's eradicated up front. Right out of the gate. This is important. Later, we'll uh, remind me to address the post-viral syndrome, okay. which I suspect are going to be the real challenge uh, in, in the ensuing on, months and years is what's going to happen to people that let their immune system, let this virus take hold partially, 
They never required medical intervention necessarily, but now this virus is going to be an opportunistic virus, much like a herpes simplex one virus, which over over 60% of the American public have, and it just raises its ugly head from time to time and, and is never really fully eradicated. And so well, that's why we need to come up with immune enhancing strategies, natural ones, now to prevent that from ever becoming an issue. So, um, so what about, uh, what about, so if, if we improve the immune system early on with hydrotherapy strategies, which our videos previously addressed, if we address that with appropriate nutrition and sleep and, and other things that we've also addressed uh, previously, then the immune system will be so strong and activated early on that virus never takes, gets a firm footing and doesn't even produce any significant symptoms. So, so we believe, uh, based on the new data, that well over 95, possibly 99% of people who get infected never need any, any additional support. We just want to optimize the immune system in that process. Number two is what about the more at-risk population? We know that somebody's obese, if somebody's diabetic in particular, they're twice as likely, if infected, to come down with serious complications of, of the disease. Once you get to the hospital, it's a 22% chance of dying. Yeah. Okay. Once you get into the ICU requiring a ventilator, it, it's anywhere from a 50% chance of death to a 90% chance of death. Okay. So, so really that is, high. so we want to make sure that the at risk population, okay. Uh, are educated appropriately now. So I'm an advocate, Dan, of if, if we're, we're, we're clearly haven't tested adequately to date. And, and you know, for the last two months, we've been hearing, oh, tests are gonna be available next, tomorrow or, or in a few days. And, oh. and, and, and still, still not. Uh, two months later, we don't have enough tests. So, so that has to improve, that has to change. We need to test uh, uh, actually, uh, the mayor of Los Angeles just just mentioned yesterday, uh, last day of April, that that they were going. Their goal was to test 10 million uh, people in the greater Los Angeles area. That's that's an amazing goal. I support that 100%. So we can have accurate data. What's really going on? Of course, we're going to see there's a fairly high infectious rate, at least more than we thought, um, uh, compared to people who are dying. Sure. And, and so. So we'll be able to concentrate on the risk factors associated with who comes up with antibodies, okay? But also more importantly, the risk factors of who becomes seriously ill and potentially dies. And, and so we wanna concentrate on the populations uh, that are highly at risk, the obese, the diabetic, the cardiovascular patients. Interestingly enough, Dan, it's not the asthmatics or those with uh, chronic obstructive lung disease (COPD) that are coming down with this problem. Isn't that Initially, bad? that was expected to be the number one risk factor. Sure. It's not. It's not even. It's the data now supports that it's not a risk factor at all. Wow. Which is, which is just baffling, because because you would think somebody with COPD okay, or asthma would be a much higher risk. Uh, especially COPD, no increased risk of, of ending up in the hospital 
with COVID-19 if you have COPD or not? Well, uh, I guess that, that destroys some of our early ideas, certainly right. pointed out, because where, where, and where does the pulmonary and the cardiovascular crossovers happen? Because obviously we found out there's blood clots, there's unexpected death from uh, people. They think they're, they're walking out of the hospital, think they're fine, they have a heart attack in 30 minutes. You know, uh, how, what do you know about that? Yeah, so, so the, the latest information, in fact, uh, again, I just got done talking in, uh, on, a, on a webinar with Dr. Roger Swelt, who, who, who's really cha uh, kind of championing this concept that is primarily an oxidative stress phenomenon. We, you know, there's, there's still so much research that needs to be done, but our best guess at this phase is that there are multiple mechanisms at work that are increasing free radical damage in the body that, that makes us think that this is primarily a, a blood vessel disease, that they, the inner lining of our blood vessels called the endothelium. It's just one cell layer thick and the endothelium are being damaged and, and oxidative damage or pathology is occurring, which then increases inflammation and that introduces a cascade of challenges that ultimately can end up in cytokine storm, which takes somebody's life. And so, yes, the lungs are involved in this process because there's blood vessels in every organ of the body, including the lungs. So we're, we're starting to think that it's via the lungs, the respiratory tree, that the, the virus gains, gains entrance into the body and then spreads via various mechanisms. And so, you know, there was an, there was an interesting study that was um, just reported on yesterday. I didn't get to actually read the study, but it was on the news, and it was reporting uh, an Italian rheumatology study of 65,000 individuals in Italy who had lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, which is our are very severe autoimmune diseases. Yes. Now, if I would have been asked even, even two days ago if what I would expect in a population like that, would, would there be a higher risk of, of coming down with COVID-19 and having complications or at lower risk or at normal risk? I would have immediately said higher risk. Now, they still may be at higher risk. I still think they're at higher risk, but those patients who were on Plaquenil, uh, otherwise known as hydroxychloroquine, yeah. uh, which is the common uh, anti-malaria medication that has been bantered about and, and debated in the, in the media over the last uh, month or so, yeah. That, that is a common medication that is given specifically for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus okay. as a way to combat the autoimmune activity, the mm -hmm. excessive immune response going on, the, the abnormal immune response, I should say, against the, against the joints and against various body organ systems. So... The, the studies have been clear, those people on Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine do much better if they have rheumatoid arthritis or, or lupus. Now, what really struck me, Damon, was that 
that out of these 65,000 patients that were being monitored in Italy, because they have a more socialized medicine system, so they keep track of everything. Sure. And guess how many of them up to this point, according to the report, got COVID-19? You would have thought it had been a big number. Yeah. It's 20. 20 out of 65,000. And guess how many of those died? Zero. Wow. And these and now, people with our- uh, Once again, if I, if I were asked to project, and of course, it's always dangerous to project because, you know, that's why we do tests. That's why we do research is to actually find out what the truth is. Sure. And so, but uh, we are always called upon to do our best guess in the moment. And so I would, I would predict or suspect that they are actually are at higher risk of COVID-19 because of all the underlying factors that I'm aware of that influence autoimmune disease, which are toxins, low-grade infections, and other, sure. other comorbid conditions. So how can it be if that's true? Now, let me make sure I understood that. Out of 65,000 people yes. that were either rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, correct. 20 people actually contracted the COVID-19 and, and zero deaths. Correct. Italy. Yeah, that was the report. I, again, I haven't seen the study. And, 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 and as we look at the study and carefully and it becomes peer-reviewed, et cetera, you know, a lot of these studies are just being thrown out there just sure. for that we can talk about. That's what we're doing right now. And so, so uh, peers, uh, other health professionals will discuss it, kind of banter the information back and forth and see how this changes our, our approach to treating uh, the at-risk patient and, uh, and then call for more research. Of course, there's a lot of HMOs out there that keep all this data on their rheumatoid arthritis and lupus patients, and they could, they could publish a paper tomorrow with that data, and I hope they do, okay? So, so in other words, what this study was suggesting, Dan, uh, or this report, is that, is that uh, Plaquenil or the hydroxychloroquine is actually preventive. It's not just therapeutic for people that are currently sick, but it actually can keep them from getting sick. Or if they do get sick, maybe a better explanation is that they just never progress in the disease to the point where they need care. Okay, now, we, it is well known that one of the main mechanisms of hydroxychloroquine is simply enhancing the transport of zinc the mineral zinc across from the bloodstream into the cells, across the membrane into the cell. And, and it is that quality of hydroxychloroquine, which is suspected to be one of the main reasons it actually prevents viral replication, because that's exactly what zinc does inside the cell, is it, it acts as birth control to the virus. It prevents the virus from hijacking the internal mechanisms of the cell and in, in producing sure. proteins, which are the source of life, but in this case, producing the viral proteins, which are the source of death. Okay, oh. and so if you have enough zinc present, it moderates that process so substantially that the studies have shown with previous coronaviruses, that the previous SARS coronaviruses, that it essentially blocks that virus from being reproduced. It just shuts it down. Oh. 
Okay, and so, so clearly that mechanism of action is worthy of further research, and until we have something better, it's worthy to consider as not only a therapeutic uh, action, but potentially even a preventive strategy. Wow. Now, now what, what's good to, what we do in lifestyle and, and, and functional medicine is we're always asking the question, okay, so that pharmaceutical medicine, that anti-malaria medicine, which clearly has some potential side effects associated with it. I've had patients who have come to me that have had fairly substantial negative side effects that are lingering because they went on anti-malaria medicines, yeah. either, either uh, as just they were going into a malaria endemic country, so they were taking it as a prophylactic, okay, which is re recommended. My daughter, who did a mission trip to Africa, was on, uh, on hydroxychloroquine once, you know, just a little bit of it uh, as a prophylactic. And I supported that. That was reasonable. Sure. But now that I've studied this further with all this interest in this topic, I know that what I would emphasize first is, number one, I would measure the zinc level in the blood and the, and the copper level in the blood, make sure that both were optimal because both are not only not only needed for many, uh, for cardiovascular health, okay, for, for immunologic health, for, for cognitive and neurologic health. Uh, but, but we know that diabetics and people with severe insulin resistance, uh, like o o obese individuals, people with high blood pressure and underlying heart disease, heart disease is primarily an insulin resistant problem for many people, that they are frequently very low in zinc. Mm. When I first started doing research in the Micronesian islands of the, of the Pacific, where I was a medical missionary for 14 years, as you know, the, the, the uh, many people who lived on the islands were aware of the research that, that the islanders at highest risk of diabetes were the ones with the lowest status of zinc. And mm. if they were given zinc as a supplement or uh, along with foods that were higher in zinc as well, they became less prone to diabetes and more able of reversing diabetes when addressing the other intervention strategies. So zinc is a critical step in this process. Zinc not only blocks viral replication uh, via that mechanism that uses plaquenil, okay, uh, but you can actually get zinc into the cell by taking the over-the-counter supplement quercetin in a similar way to what Plaquenil does, so, so which doesn't have the side effects of Plaquenil. So there's, there's workarounds. So the, in, in nutritional medicine, I'm always learning from the basic science research, the pharmacological research, and saying, okay, is there, are there other more natural ways to accomplish this, at least in part, that can work as adjuncts to these other strategies? Sure, sure. And the answer is almost always yes, <laughs> okay? wow. and as long as we're willing to look at the research. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, here, one of the things we're finding after all this time is that having a good level of zinc and copper in your system allows your body in a natural lifestyle way to be able to resist something as offensive as COVID-19. So what I do, Dan, is I, I now, as part of my testing protocol for every patient, recommend a zinc blood level okay. and a copper blood level. 
That's just part of, uh, I, in fact, I just did this myself about two weeks ago. I was hesitant for a while to recommend people to go to the labs because of this, you know, question about infectivity. And then I realized now that, that maybe that was um, overreacting uh, because, for instance, LabCorp, which is my favorite lab nationally, they never laid off one person. Hmm. Okay. They, they, um, they have a 70% reduction in, in normal volume. Okay. But they didn't, they didn't release any workers. Okay. They're all following the strictest uh, medical guidelines for protecting themselves and other people. I walked in there wearing a mask. Everybody else in there was wearing a mask. They were very courteous. There was hardly any weight at all. I just went in there and I, I did a huge blood test, 30 different tests I did. Okay. And that included zinc and copper. Okay. And I'm so glad I did it because I learned that ironically my zinc was adequate, but my copper was low. Oh, okay. And, and, and this was more typical to my patients in Guam because of the volcanic aquifers have high manganese. The manganese in the water is so high. It tends to, it tends to uh, neutralize zinc to a degree. And so you have, you have lower zinc, excuse me, it decreases copper. And so you end up with, with uh, high manganese, low copper in about a third of the population. So I'm low in copper right now. I wasn't actually taking that much zinc beforehand. I wasn't supplementing it specifically. I wanted to test to see if I needed to. I'm taking a little bit of zinc right now along with quercetin, but, but I'm doing it based on objective measures from my own body. But what I'm also doing, which I don't normally have to recommend to patients, is I'm taking copper, uh, about two milligrams, which is actually a lot of copper, uh, relatively speaking. And that copper and zinc are both necessary to, get this, prevent unnecessary oxidative stress. So not only are zinc and copper important in the immune system's response to how viruses replicate in the cell, but it's also critically important to the cardiovascular oxidative stress factors that can ultimately take somebody's life. In other words, by paying attention now to zinc and copper status as one of the many considerations that can enhance the immune system and help balance the cardiovascular system at the same time. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, just for those who may be watching there saying, okay, oxidative stress, I know what that is, but I'm not sure. Just review uh, in a moment here, oxidative stress. What is so bad about that in the body and how does it happen? Well, uh, the best way to understand oxidative stress is to understand antioxidants. And so we all know about the antioxidant properties of vitamin C, of vitamin E, and, and essentially, and, and, and well, zinc now and other things. And so, but there's many different mechanisms by which oxidative stress can occur. Also, we can refer to it as free radical damage. And so uh, oxidative stress is associated with free radicals. These are chemicals that, that are, are, uh, are dying to get an electron, right? And, uh, and, and, and they become oxidized. And so, they, so the, the, what happens is that if we don't have good biochemistry and good physiology through a healthy diet, or we have too much stress, or we have inadequate sleep, uh, et cetera, the body starts to get more and more 
stress from a chemical perspective through this oxidation process or free radical process. And so what, what, what we need is, is, is various processes that donate electrons. Vitamin C can donate an electron and calm things down. Uh, vitamin E can donate electrons and calm things down. And so, so uh, that's why we want to have a diet that's rich in whole plant-based foods, because this is where we get the abundance of antioxidants. So we should be just looking for a supplement to fix this, because really you can't supplement away the, the oxidative stress process. You need to focus on the broader, more foundational strategies of why the oxidative stress happened in the first place. Lack of a healthy diet, too much uh, sugary carbohydrates, refined starches, too much uh, saturated fat or animal fat, too much uh, vegetable oils as well, really bad for this process. All these cause oxidative stress to the body. Lack of sleep, uh, alcohol consumption, uh, just being angry with your neighbor, uh, being angry with your, with your spouse or, or children or parents, that creates oxidative stress. And so, so addressing each of those in a positive way is an antioxidant. Forgiving each other is an antioxidant. Uh, and, then, and then as adjunctive strategies, in addition to the fundamentals, we have simple remedies which would include taking a little bit of vitamin C orally, uh, taking some vitamin E, uh, taking some zinc possibly, but that can all be done in a prudent way by working with your healthcare professionals so that you're getting the optimal balance. Sure, sure. Well, I'm uh, now that we're finding out that COVID-19 actually causes oxidative stress, um, you know, I'm just thinking of, the, of myself and others that are saying, okay, We've been through, a, basically, we started talking about this January 31. Okay, that was the first time you made a presentation on the COVID-19. That's three months ago, okay? We've gone through this whole process now, and people are confused, and some people are very unhappy. There's, in fact, there's a lot of anger going on. Um, there are resistance movements. I saw yesterday at the Michigan, the new, in the news in Michigan, there's some actual armed militants that made it inside the Capitol building. You probably saw that review yeah. as well. And you can see people are frustrated because their, their lifestyles, the, the income is cut off. I think they'd say 30 or 40 million people now are uh, on the unemployment rolls just like that. Um, and there's a lot of stress. Talk about, it's not just oxidative stress. There's a lot of regular stress that is killing people out there. So here we are, it's Friday afternoon, uh, May 1. And people have been paying attention. They've been saturated with this on the evening news. What would you say to someone who's been working very, very hard to try to keep from getting this? And they have. They wear the masks. They go out. You know, they may be out of toilet paper at their house by now. Who knows? But <laughs> what, what do we say to people as far as how they go forward from here? So, uh, so first of all, I think, that, I think that there was an understandable overreaction. Uh, I, I presented uh, on, you know, on February the 1st, I presented a very lengthy discussion that's on our YouTube channel uh, that 
that talked about the, the current, at the time, mathematic modeling of how bad this was going to be. Yes. Well, for various reasons, the, the, while this is a very infectious virus, there's no, there's no debate about this. This is a, a far more infectious virus than the seasonal flu, et cetera. But, but there, there has not been a significant more death rate uh, uh, from COVID-19 uh, than, than the season, than some bad years for the seasonal flu. And that's, that's good. So the, the question is, is, is now that we have more information, uh, have we overreacted? Okay. And, and like, like Dr. Fauci said at the very beginning, he says, our job is to overreact. Our job is to, is to <clears throat> implement a strategy that errs on the side of protection versus on the side of just let everything run. And, uh, and, and so I, I agree with that, but it's also our job to look at the, at the most recent data and adjust our reaction, our response, and our guidelines appropriately. And so, um, so looking backwards now, the Monday morning quarterbacking, um, I, I think we can say fairly accurately that, that many governments and municipalities have overreacted by closing down walking trails, by closing down large parks or national parks or closing down, um, uh, uh, closing down beaches. Sure. Now, we, and why am I saying that? Because all the data shows that one of the healthiest places you can be, uh, even if you're infected, is in the sunshine and in the fresh air. Sure. So that's very clear. Now that doesn't change the wisdom in, in establishing reasonable social distancing rules and reasonable mask wearing rules. And so, so um, is you know when I when I first when I first uh, was addressing this in in early February, if I went out, I was wearing a mask and full sealed goggles. No, no air vent at all. These are fireman goggles. Why? Because because the, there was a concern that the aerosolization of the virus in in places even like places like a grocery store could get into the eyes and infect somebody that way. Sure. Well, that still may be true, but it the viral dose is everything. And so if our immune system is even marginally effective it's able to handle a very low dose exposure like through the eyes, okay? Unless somebody's exposed to that viral cloud all day long, like some doctors may have been if they weren't wearing proper uh, eye protection. So, so there's, there's, it's reasonable looking back to say, we should, we should in a safe way uh, open up these outdoor uh, recreational areas but do it in a way with supervision on hand to ensure that there's reasonable social distancing going on. Because people are gonna be much healthier going to the beach. They're gonna be much, their, their, their immune system's gonna improve. Their vitamin D levels will soar by being out in the sun. The, the, the virus is, is well known now to not survive very long at all when exposed to sunlight and fresh air. And, and their so, stress will be down, and their stress will go down. Absolutely, and so there is there's clearly ways that that uh, municipalities can 
can supervise uh, uh, beach activities so that people aren't packed in like sardines. Sure. Okay. I mean, if, if they can shut a beach down, they can do that. Certainly. Right. But I think I think all beaches should be open. I think I think all parks should be open. And then there needs to be again, there needs to be some uh, maybe a through neighborhood watch or there uh, there's all kinds of people to be willing to volunteer to help ensure that there's reasonable social distancing going on. I mean, how, how do supermarkets do it? Yeah. Right. And so in other words, if 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 it's safe enough to go into a supermarket that's an enclosed area, then it's then there's absolutely no science, no good science behind saying that it's unsafe to go sure. and be at a park or to to walk on a nature trail or to be at the beach. So I think that's one of the things that that we need to encourage our leaders to be aware of that. You know that we talk about following the science. Well. Let's follow the science then. The science is very clear. Dr. Roger Schwelt did a whole show on forest bathing, showing that being in a forest, being in the woods, being in the wilderness, being in nature, walking amongst the rocks and, uh, and, 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 the, and the trees, uh, actually enhances the immune system dramatically dramatically above and beyond what the sunshine and the fresh air would do. There's actual, there's actually chemicals released in, uh, by forests and trees sure. that, that enhance the body's ability to fight viruses. So, so this idea, like, like in Michigan, we can't even go out into the woods. I know, you know, that's there, there's no science behind that. And that's what people are getting upset on is when, when government authorities, overreach the overreach themselves and to make policies that make absolutely no sense then then it becomes more clear that it's a question of control and 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 we need to and we need to voice our 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 concerns about things like that so sure. in the meantime it, we need to whatever we do we should not do it in a way that is putting ourselves or other people at risk so sure. if we're going to be i think one rule dan so if we're going to be in a in a enclosed or outdoor area where we're going to be getting closer than six feet to people, okay, mm -hmm. because of whatever, because of the of the number of people around, then it's reasonable to wear a mask. Sure. Okay. Um, and then as soon as we're in an area that is less dense, then we don't really need to be wearing a mask. So if there's if there's a hundred feet between me and another person on a beach. I don't need to be wearing a mask. Sure, it's good to have one available. So when I go skateboarding with my family on on the on the walking tra uh, trails and the bike trails here in Temecula, um, I have a mask with me, but I don't use it because because I'm not there unless there's a lot of people on the trail. Then I'll put it on. If I go by somebody, I put it on temporarily and I take it back off. So that's a reasonable thing from a from a scientific standpoint. Don't expose yourself unnecessarily, but get outside, get some exercise. One of the most important things is to get exercise. And, and people are becoming less and less healthy and more and more prone to infection and serious complications because they're afraid to get outside. And so those countries that have said, you can't even be outside your house, there is absolutely no science behind that. And that is an overreach of authority. It certainly is. And of course, we have these stories of doors being welded shut in some countries and, 
and the reaction, the overreaction is certainly there. And we tend, that's a tendency. When there's a danger, you overreact and then you find out what's real. But I wanna ask another practical thing. I've talked to some people that haven't been out of their house, basically, um, for 45 days. Um, wow. Are you comfortable to go to a grocery store with your mask on? Am I? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do it once a week and I get lots of food and lots of veggies. And, uh, and you know what? Initially, the grocery stores, you know, they, of course, the first thing that went was toilet paper. Yes. Okay? And, and of course, those people who were paying attention to our earlier presentation had all the toilet paper they needed. Right. Right. And so, so but, but the, the other things that went were, you know, the meat aisles were just emptied out, right? Sure. Okay, and, uh, and of course, we now know that it's in the meat packing plants and in the meat sections where uh, uh, of, of the processing plants that are serious risk factors for getting infected. Uh, and so maybe that's another reason why people need to move away from the meat eating because that's, well, we all know that that's not a healthy way to do things. But the, um, in terms of going to the grocery store, the, the one of the first foods that was not available is we even the um, this, this the soy milks or the almond milks or any kind of dairy even just gone and they said you could only get one or two yeah well within a within less than a week they took the signs down you'd take as much as you want because the initial hoarding was over and at that point we're just getting enough to to stock up and so they're going like take as much as you want yeah. because the stores planned ahead and had more products available. And so now there was, there was really no problem, at least in the stores I went to, there was, there was no problem getting the majority of what you needed except for that first week of panic. Um, and so, and so the, the key is most families can go to the grocery store once a week, you know, send your sure. representative, which is usually me and, um, because I wasn't afraid to go. Initially, I was wearing the, 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 the fireman's mask, goggles. But after a time, I realized that that wasn't necessary. And I just wore a mask. And especially, see, once everybody starts wearing a mask, then it becomes very safe. Sure. But what's not safe is when other people aren't wearing masks. Okay, so this, the initial idea of wearing a mask is actually harmful. There was never any science to that. That was, you know, whoever started that and whoever perpetrated that, it was, it was all foolishness. It was all foolishness. Well, I and, think even worse than that, it was intentional deception. And, and that, in fact, that's one reason why people have a hard time believing. Yeah, that. yeah. Things like that makes us cynical, unfortunately. And so, but the good news is, is that after a time, common sense uh, came back into the uh, front and center. And, and we realized that, and this has been true, you know, for, for decades and decades, all other countries that have had experience with pandemics, they know as soon as there's a problem, everybody wears masks. That's why everybody has masks. And that's why we should learn our lesson that everybody should have their set of masks uh, available because this is not going away. This is going to become a recurring uh, problem. You know, when I was in Tokyo 30 years ago, um, I was shocked to see people wearing masks. I said, what is that? And then the doctors there explained to me, said, well, if somebody has a, has a, a cold or a flu or they're in, in a house with somebody who has it, it's just common courtesy here in Japan. We just, they all wear masks as a sign that we're not going to, we're not going to infect other people. 
Okay, yeah. I mean, it's common sense, right? So we should be doing the same thing. And, and the people at risk should always wear a mask, okay? Uh, when, when exposed to people that are, they're not normally around. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if we did that, all these social, other social distancing restrictions could have been far less severe if initially we would just focus on masks. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you have Sweden as a great example compared to Norway. I'm Norwegian, right? And so Norway locked down, Sweden did not. Very similar countries, okay? And on a statistical basis, while Sweden does have more cases and more deaths, it's not that big of a difference between them and Norway, even though Sweden never locked down. Everybody, the, uh, the restaurants stayed open, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's a major clue that the whole issue with lockdown has been overemphasized. What we need to now is, is, is re-emphasize is the importance of healthy behaviors, the importance of getting outside and getting sunlight. So I, this is what I would say, Dan, to individuals in our community that have not come out of their house in 45 days. Um, that is a, a misapplication of the data, okay? That the data always said, get outside, right? In February 1, we gave a talk about the importance of fresh air and sunlight, of, of, of opening the, the windows and the doors and letting, you know, ventilating the house several times a day, even if it's cold out. Sure. Um, but, but also getting outside, I mean, it's, it's not like you're on the street, you know, in a hustle and bustle of New York City if you go outside. I no. mean, most places you get outside, you have a front yard, you have a backyard and take advantage of it. So even if you don't go anywhere outside of your immediate property, as long as you're getting exposed to fresh air and sunshine, you can walk around your house. Yeah. You know, you can just walk back and forth in your backyard or in your front yard. But you can do more than that as well. You can go for walks in your neighborhood. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no, there's no rule against it even. Um, and it, but if you, if you go outside of your immediate uh, uh, yard, it's good to have a mask with you. Sure. If there's nobody around, you don't have to have a mask on uh, other than the guideline, right? But the principle is you wear a mask only if there's somebody near you within six feet that could possibly infect you, right? That I mean that's the principle, that the, the the spirit of the law. And so, so if you go for a walk or a bike ride, or I, I I like to go biking with my kids or skateboarding with them, and and that's great exercise. Or just go walking in the evenings or in the morning. We need to be doing that more consistently than than normal. There's no there's no risk in doing that. In fact. In fact, it lowers your risk if you do it. Sure, that's, that makes so much sense. Now, two of the things that I, I want us to talk about here, but in the time we've got left, uh, Dr. Youngberg, and one is so many people are, are not working because their offices are closed because of social distancing, fear, et cetera. What would you say about getting back into a less social distanced world, whether it were, and we'll talk about church in a minute, but first let's talk about businesses. So, so essentially, uh, that's another thing that I think in retrospect, we, we, we overreacted. I mean, I did, I'm an essential worker, and I actually moved home. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to do that. But I said, you know what? There's too many unknowns. I, because I can move, I, 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 
changed my phone system to Ring Central so that my staff could answer the phone anywhere in the country, you know, and we could still dialogue. And so we just moved everything to our respective homes or other locations that were not part of a medical group building, right? So, So at the time, that made good sense. In retrospect, it probably wasn't necessary, but I've enjoyed actually being, you know, working from home. I've enjoyed doing all my visits on uh, telemedicine using Zoom. And, um, and of course, I, I do that all for patients all around the country already anyway. So it didn't really change how I operated sure. other than just simplifying it. You know, everything, everything's done simply. Well, so I would say this is that I, I would have no problem moving back into my clinic right now uh, if it was if it was um, convenient for me to do so, okay? Now, what about other people that basically are, were told they could not be at work or, or because they're not considered essential workers? Well, <laughs> the reality, Dan, is that everybody's an essential worker. Sure. Okay, I mean, if uh, our economy has already suffered so much that economists are saying that it's going to be years before it recovers at all. That's true. Okay, and, 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 and that to me is far more devastating. In other words, more people could die because of the shutdown than, than were saved because of the shutdown. Wow. And, and, and Chris, that's, a, that's a, a projection. That's an estimate, just like everything else has been so far. Uh, but we, we know that because of the shutdown, that cases of, of child abuse, of sexual abuse, of spousal abuse, of homicide, of, uh, you know, of, of basically all these things have gone up, okay? At least in the family unit, they have gone up because sure. of the stressors associated with shutdown. This, the economic stressors, where, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to pay the rent? And so our, our state have to be more rigorous about following the science, okay, and initiating a, a, an appropriate reintroduction to, to normal economic status. And, and so I would say that every, every business uh, not only has the right, but has the, the, the potential to open up following certain guidelines where they are opened up in a way that either they're limiting the number of people that go into the place of business. Sure. Uh, they're, they're wearing a mask, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing those two things right there, there should absolutely be no reason why, why businesses can't open up. Okay. Now, because if you, again, if you can go into a grocery store, okay, sure. uh, which is usually much more crowded than the typical place of business, right? That's okay. Right. No then, then as long as each business is, uh, uh, you know, signs on the dotted line that they're going to follow appropriate uh, guidelines, which are basically make sure that people were in mass and, uh, and, 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 and limit the number of people that are coming in and limit their ability to, to be in too close contact with each other. Sure. So, so to me, that's an obvious thing, and, and I'm hoping that our elected officials will, will start paying more attention to that, because every day that goes by without people working, uh, there's going to be many unintended consequences that come from it. Sure. Now, when you come to activities like church, okay, church is a very special thing. It's a, 
a deep spiritual thing. Now, here in Fallbrook and across Seventh-day Adventist churches across the nation, we've adapted pretty well. I mean, yes. we're, we're doing um, Zooms, just like what you and I are doing right now. I think I had 57 connections last Sabbath for the Sabbath school class. One, two, three, four, I don't know, people at each connection. Um, our church services being YouTube uh, streamed, streamed live on YouTube. So we've adapted to that. There are some people that are falling through the cracks a little bit because they don't have access to the technology, perhaps. And we're trying to make sure we take, stay in close touch by telephone. And I know some people go and ring a doorbell and stand back 15 feet and just talk and kind of shout at each other. There's got to be those things. But when, it talks, when we talk about re-easing back into a worship service, a live worship service, where we have people of all ages, what do you think is a guideline? Because I know a lot of conferences, a lot of churches are starting to think, how do we go back to do this? And nobody wants to be first because of the potential liability. They don't want to be the ones that cause more of these uh, deaths to happen. Uh, what do you think? What's the counsel? What's the counsel for? Yeah, I, I think right now we're playing. It's more of a perception war. It's more of a political issue, uh, unfortunately. And so we, and we have to, we have to, you know, um, understand the implications of the perception. And so uh, the media would immediately come down on any, any church organization like they did in New York with the Jewish organization. Sure. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of sad how they're really coming down. I mean, they're just following their culture. And, and, and uh, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the government telling somebody they can't follow the, their cultural traditions of thousands of years. Yeah. Okay? As if there's never been a pandemic yeah. uh, in the past, right? Like this is, this is a, a whole new approach of dealing with pandemics. And like I said, I think, I think we're, we're, it's not like we have Ebola being passed around uh, to millions of people, which of course would never happen because Ebola kills too quickly. Sure. But um, so I, I think we need to be very thoughtful as we uh, consider uh, the future steps. Uh, I, I really think that the first step is to make sure that we're working with our with our city officials and, and our, our county officials to ensure that appropriate testing is being done. I think that's, that's the, an area of um, where, where we've really, as, an, as, as, a, as a country, dropped the ball. We, 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 have to, we have to make sure that people have a test available, sure. uh, easily available in a short amount of time and especially the at-risk population. So I would say this, we're fortunate, Dan, that in our congregation of uh, roughly 400 members, no one to our knowledge no. has, has gotten COVID-19 and certainly nobody has succumbed to it. Now, chance, I would suspect that, that more than a few did come down with COVID-19. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I did at, at some point, uh, um, but, I actually had an antibody test on me done because uh, uh, the administrator of the medical group I used to work for, um, you know, he, he actually offered me the test. I was the first doctor that they checked and, uh, and I came back negative. But these, you know, these tests are, there's only one test that's FDA approved and, and, and they're questionable in their effectiveness, right? Their, their sensitivity and specificity. But, but it's, that's still, that's all we have right now. So we should move forward with good testing so that if somebody finds out that they have issues, we can learn more about maybe how that came to be and fix that. So 
I think the most important thing to fix is get people tested so that they're aware. Right? That's the whole, the whole thing about testing so we know what's going on inside of our bodies. And number two is we need to educate the at-risk populations, which we've been doing in our church for decades. Yeah. Um, uh, as far as, you know, what, what's, the, what's the downside of being a diabetic? If you are a diabetic, what do you do about it? And we have the Diabetes Undone programs and all these other programs available that will literally mitigate the risk of complications of diabetes, which, which at the same time mitigate the risk of COVID-19. Sure. That's the beauty of it. So, so if we keep educating our at-risk population and then educate them so well, that they are at lower risk, but also that they recognize that they need to have different behaviors than maybe the rest of us that are not at high risk. And this becomes tricky, you know, because people say, well, I should have the same ability to go to church as anybody else. Well, if you have, if, if you have the flu or somebody in your family has a bad flu, do we have the ethical right to go to church and infect other people who might be at risk. Yeah, to pass it around. Yeah, so I mean, that's, I believe that has to be done on a personal level. You know, um, mandating things can be, can lead to real, real challenges very quickly politically. And so I think, I think our encouragement is educating people like if you, if there's any possibility that you could be sick with any virus of a respiratory nature that can be spread easily, you should stay home, That's right. period. Whether you're working, whether you're a central worker or not, you should stay home until you're better, right? Yeah. That's our, our ethical responsibility is sense. to take accountability, okay? And so, so that's number one. Uh, uh, number two, the at-risk population, the diabetics, et cetera, they need to be much more thoughtful about reintroducing into activities, even when there's social distancing in, in place, uh -huh. uh, because they're at higher risk, right? Mm -hmm. So, so for instance, in retrospect, if, if I were being asked, if I was asked by the coronavirus task force, and I'm, I know I'm not going to be asked, but if I was asked what my advice would be. Uh, in retrospect, what my Monday morning quarterbacking would be. I would say we overreacted in shutting down everybody, regardless of their risk, of going to work. Sure. We should have never done that, okay? We didn't have actually good evidence to do that. We, sure. we just overreacted, and we all kind of went along with it because yeah. there were so many yeah. unknowns. Uh, the, we, should have, we should have allowed the, the non-at-risk population, which is over 80% of the population, to work, following certain, you know, wearing a mask, following certain, make sure they're washing your hands, all those things we've been learning, okay? Uh, but it's, it's those, those that were high risk, they should have been told, you need to be, stay home until we learn more, sure. okay? And because we didn't do that, that's why we're in the position we are with our economy and, and with our national indebtedness uh, that was already horrifying uh, now, now catapulted to um, unreasonable levels that are that are putting all of us at greater risk. Oh, still, no, we get that there can it, it, there will be inflation. Okay, there is inflation going on now. But you know, I'm thinking in terms of of the future. 
you know, three months has gone by like that. One thing I've discovered being at home and, and me working from home, you know, we've been able to social distance at my office here in Fallbrook and, and I go in two days a week and other people go in so that nobody's there at the same time. But I think we're fast getting to the point where that can probably uh, be changed, mitigated. We can mitigate the, the mitigation. <laughs> That's right. I totally agree. I, I think we need to we need to move forward with that. Uh, we just need to focus on educating the public of how to do this. Okay, but not keep saying we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, because every day that goes by, people's lives are being ruined uh, uh, more so than COVID nineteen. Sure, sure. Now, with the things that we've already learned, like you said, this is Monday morning uh, after the game. And you can look back and say, okay, we overreacted. There are certain things like, for instance, learning about zinc and copper and how important that is in the whole process. Because it's very likely that this is going to hang around for a while. We're going to see a little resurgence in the fall, maybe next year. I don't know. But certainly, if it comes back around, we need to be able to approach it differently and be prepared in our own minds for how to approach it differently that is not so devastating um, and recognize that there are certain ones among us that are at much higher risk and we need to minister to those people and help them and, and, and create as much normalcy as we can so that they're not going to be um, adversely affected by serious illness or death. Absolutely. Uh, we, we need to understand where the people, um, who the people are that are at risk and then do, uh, uh, do everything we can to minimize their risk. Uh, through education, but also like, you know, these the nursing homes, you know, we, we got to rethink nursing homes. Absolutely, boy. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, we, we need to, you know, maybe, maybe there's something uh, to various societies that make sure that their living situations are where there's, there's always a place for a mom and dad, right? Sure. Um, and, and, uh, and so that these nursing homes uh, become less, less necessary uh, and and there and these individuals are in a in a family situation that is much healthier and less risky. Well, I, I certainly I think areas of policy in states and federal and county and and city those are all going to undergo a massive review, and rightfully so. It's having been uh, a nursing home administrator at one point in my life. Okay, I look at the whole idea of having the admission of COVID-19 patients into a nursing home is almost it is unconscionable, where you have a place where it will get loose among a population that's very high risk. And one of our states did that. And it's very clear. And I just, I'm appalled. Those are the kind of things that we need to make sure those kind of mistakes never happen again. And we, we, we respect those among us who are at the greatest need. Well, listen, I think today we've spent a little over an hour talking now. Uh, Wes, we can do this again. Uh, yes. We're in a new era now. We we're past that 45-day uh, that uh, uh, lockdown uh, time. So let's plan to talk again. In the meantime, uh, I know that you're getting ready for Sabbath, and so are we. Yes. Uh, I hope that we can enjoy a wonderful Sabbath with our church family, and this will be up so people can, can watch and, and get up to date on where we're at. And we'll look forward to doing this again in maybe a week or 10 days. Yes, and so for those that want more information about, about natural ways to, to optimize, enhance the immune system, which means in, in increase the immune system's ability to wake up and fight the virus earlier on, which then decreases the overactivity 
the overreaching of the immune system later on. Yes. And so it's a really a, an adaptogenic modulating effect on the immune system. So it brings up the low immune system to where it needs to be and deactivates an excess immune system when it's in excess. So, so the, the immune protocol that I, I've actually uh, updated in the last few days is available uh, on my website, dryoungberg.com, um, that, um, that ha it's right there on the home page. Uh, you just click on that in the first post and you can see uh, all the links and the links to our past presentations that you and I have done, Dan, yes. the hydrotherapy discussions, uh, other, other professional videos on hydrotherapy and, and uh, understanding this whole post-viral syndrome concern and yes. you know, all the reasons that we need, the motivators that we need to stay focused on this because it's going to be around a long time, but we got to get our economy going again and we have to take care of the people that are at the highest risk. That's right. Well, on our next visits together, Wes, we'll talk about post-viral syndrome right at the beginning. So we get that right. All righty. All right. Good talking to you and uh, God bless. And all, all right. of you watching, uh, blessings to you as well. Thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.